nature has found a way to achieve a balance. It's not carpet bombing. It's not, I'm just going to remove this thing entirely. It's, these things are here. They're not going anywhere. Let's figure out how to make that balance happen. Caitlin Howe, talking about a new way to approach an intractable problem in our world today. How to prevent bacterial infections from becoming resistant to any of the antibiotics that are designed to kill them off. I'm Ron Lisnett, and this is the Main Question Podcast. As an associate professor of bioengineering at UMaine, Caitlin Howell's taking a different approach to stopping infections from causing us harm. She specializes in bio-inspired engineering, looking at how nature takes on these problems. Antibiotic resistance is a huge issue that has begun to spiral out of control. One recent study found that five million deaths per year can be attributed to bacteria that have grown resistant to treatment by antibiotics. 20% of those deaths were in children under the age of five. Early returns on Howell's work have shown great promise that there is another way. By mimicking how nature achieves a balance in the growth and damage caused by harmful bacteria. To begin with, she's focusing on a medical procedure that causes millions of urinary tract infections and believe it or not, the solution involves mucus. If this technique progresses as Howell hopes it will, doctors may one day be able to tell bacteria where and when to grow or not grow eliminating the need for many types of antibiotics. In this final episode of season eight, we ask the question, can engineering inspired by nature improve human health? Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know end of the semester, it gets uh, kind of hectic. Mm. And just for people listening, uh, if you hear a lawnmower outside, it's that time of year, right? <laughs> it is indeed. <laughs> so talk about the, the basic challenge or the, or the big question you were presented with what is it and how did it come to your attention? Mm -hmm. So bacteria are around us all the time, every day, and most of the time we don't notice them, but when they start to do bad things, they start to come to the forefront of our attention. So I had been working in a situation where I was studying materials and what we use our materials for, and I had always been interested in bacteria and microorganisms, because to me it's just fascinating that you can have something way too small to see that can grow and change and adapt in so many ways and can really cause so many problems for humans. And so we started to think about infections and how materials are associated with infections and what a massive problem that is. So that is where I ended up coming into this space of let's think about infections and the problems that they cause and how we might be able to approach those problems. How big a problem is this? What are some of the stats in terms of bacteria that's resistant to treatment? Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you off of the top of my head without looking at those numbers, but I can tell you that one of the biggest problems that we're facing with bacteria and infections is actually antimicrobial resistance or antibacterial resistance. Probably most of your listeners will have heard of this type of thing. Um, we've all had infections. We've all taken antibiotics, and those antibiotics work wonderfully. They're like magic medicine, right? You take them, and then you just start to feel better. But slowly, little by little, antibiotics are not working anymore. And the problem is because we're getting more and more bacteria that are resistant to these medicines. And I can tell you that there was um, a big report that came out just a few years ago where they studied what is this problem? Where are we right now? And they found that there are currently almost 5 million deaths per year around the world that are associated with antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance. And terribly, 
one in five of these is a child under five years old. Mm. So actual infections straight out, I can't tell you, but infections where antimicrobial resistance is playing in, it is a massive and growing problem. So it's really been quite a dramatic shift because when antibiotics first came on the scene, penicillin and such, I mean, they were miracle drugs. They saved millions, like you said. Now it's it's overuse is, is just too, too much of a a good thing or what was a good thing, right? That's basically the, the, the issue. Exactly. These medicines were game changers. And because of that, they were very, very widely used for everything, you know, to the point where you go into a doctor's office and the doctor isn't quite sure what is going wrong. But if there's any chance it's a bacterial infection, we're just going to give you antibiotics because there's no consequence, right? If we get it wrong, if it's viral, well, it's not going to do anything particularly mm. bad. But that's actually not the the worst part of it. These medicines were so amazing that they started being used in a lot of different areas as well. Agriculture, for example, raising animals. It turns out that when you feed antibiotics to your chickens or pigs or cows, they will actually get fatter. Because if you kill the bacteria in your animal, the food that you feed your animal goes into making more animal and less bacteria inside of animal. So this has been a very popular way to increase the weight of animals, which means you can get more for them at the market. And then also having antibiotics sloshing around a farm, these eventually go out and leak into the environment. And out in the environment, you also get resistance developing. So the issue is really that when you have a population of microbes, you have a lot of variation in that. You know, our genetic information, it's slightly different in all of us. It's slightly different in all bacteria. So if you take that population and you hit it with antibiotics, yes, it will probably kill the majority. But if there was any genetic variation in there that allowed a couple of cells to survive, those cells are going to be the ones that grow because suddenly there's room, there's space for these, you've killed all the rest of them. So you do this over and over and over and you are slowly building populations of bacteria, of microorganisms that resist things amazingly well because we have made that happen. And that's what is happening all around the world over and over and over and over and over. And that's why we, why we are where we are. Right. Well, I know we were talking about sort of what is an apt analogy for, you know, describing this problem. And, you know, we sort of talked about, well, using like a cannon to kill a mosquito or a sledgehammer to, you know, to, to kill a fly or something. Just it's, it's because these antibiotics are indiscriminate in, in many cases and they're killing everything, right? It's just... It's uh, too big a tool. It's not finely tuned to what the actual problem is. Is that part of it? Exactly. We're carpet bombing these populations of organisms, and we're not thinking about the consequences of doing so. We we can't see them, so we think, oh, they just go they just go away. But that's not what's happening when we do this. This scorched earth approach is starting to come back to bite us. Right. So uh, talk about uh, how you decided to approach the problem. Then. Uh, you know, antibiotics weren't working anymore, so you needed another way to attack this. What what was your thinking, and, and what direction did you go in? Yeah, so um, I had come from a place before I came here from the University of Maine where people were all looking at bio-inspired materials. And basically that just means looking at nature for how nature solves problems and then stealing those ideas and using them for human problems. And it turns out that although that approach doesn't work everywhere, it works a lot of the time. 
And uh, here in Maine, because we're, we're in a state that's 90% forested, it's really an excellent opportunity to look at all the ways in which nature is starting to approach the, pro the problem of bacteria. So if you think about, you know, the forests out here with all the lovely hiking trails or the Witter Farm or these places, they seem, you know, clean and idyllic and nice and happy. But if you really think about it, there are bacteria everywhere in there. But nature has found a way to achieve a balance. It's not carpet bombing. It's not, I'm just going to remove this thing entirely. It's, these things are here. They're not going anywhere. Let's figure out how to make that balance happen. So we're looking at nature and we're seeing that type of situation over and over in a lot of different ways achieved by various means. And so we started to think, okay, how can we learn from these wonderful examples that nature is giving us and apply that to the human problems, uh, the places where we need to have more balance in our bacterial situations. Right. So uh, the one example that really I think you're honing in on is the use of catheters yes. and the and the uh, infections that result from that far too often. So talk about the, the we're going to use the word mucus, right? <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> yes, a little bit of foreshadowing there. Yeah, you're right. exactly right. So, so how, do, how does that help solve or, or address this problem? So um, as I mentioned, we, we work with materials in my research group. I'm in biomedical engineering and I specialize in designing and creating materials that can have specific properties, particularly that can control bacteria populations in ways that we want. So um, we started looking at, okay, where, where in the world, where in medicine are we having a lot of problems with antibiotic resistance, with bacteria attaching, with infection, and a situation that's associated with a particular material. And that's how we landed on catheters. So for any of your listeners who are luckily lucky enough to not know what a catheter is, that's great. Um, but what they are, are one of the most commonly used medical devices. They're inserted up into the urethra, into the bladder, and they allow um, urine to drain out for people who don't have the ability to control that function, either because they're undergoing surgery, they're in chemotherapy, they're older a lot of situations where folks need to use catheters. But just because of the nature of where those devices are located, they are massively prone to infection. It's very, very easy to get an infection. And in fact, the statistics are, for every day you have a catheter in place, you have between a three and 10% chance of getting an infection. High, but eh, okay. If you carry that out to 30 days, you have had the same catheter for 30 days, you have a 100% chance of infection. Wow. Yeah, it is massive. Mm. So as you can imagine, for folks um, like folks in elder care facilities, for example, who need to use these day after day, infection after infection after infection, mm. and it, it really affects you. It's not just you know the pain. It's not just the disorientation. It's just it's terrible for everybody involved in that situation. And so we chose to focus on that because we see that there's the greatest potential for benefit by targeting that, that population, that particular medical device. Okay, so how does mucus help? Okay, so let's think about bio-inspired engineering here and let me take you on a bio-inspired engineering journey. So let's look at nature 
and think of ways in which nature controls bacterial populations. I mentioned the farm, I mentioned the forest, those are some examples. But if we want to apply this to a human problem, maybe we need to think a little bit more about something closer to home, something like our own bodies. Of course, you probably have heard that there are as many if not more bacterial cells inside of each of us as our own cells. We are super organisms. But again, our bodies are not accomplishing this with massive application of antibiotics everywhere. It's doing this in another way. And so if we ask, well, how? The answer is it's complicated and there are a lot of different ways. But let's think about the place in our bodies where we have the highest bacterial population probably our intestines, right? right. They okay. do a lot for us. Our microbiome, that area of research is just exploding and it is so cool. But how does our body accomplish that? How do we achieve balance with our bacterial populations? The answer is mucus. So um, the mucus is, is it's something that we might think of as gross if we haven't put a lot of thought into it. But if you think about it a little bit, it's actually an incredible material. And the more we study it, the more we're learning exactly how incredible it is. It turns out that mucus does a lot of different things. It creates a flowing, dynamic situation and environment where the bacteria can actually feel home at home. They, they don't encounter a solid surface, which is a sign for them to stick, attach, and protect themselves, right? Let's colonize this. They're like, oh, I'm in this fluid, flowy place. I don't need to express those proteins to create a biofilm. I don't need to turn virulent and attack my host. I'm happy here. Also, we're finding that mucus will actually uh, contain chemical products and molecules that will communicate with the bacteria and further enforce, hey, calm down. You're okay. You're happy. You don't need to freak out and turn toxic and attack. So mucus does a lot of really wonderful things. but. As a bio-inspired engineer, I can't copy all of that. Nature is beautifully complex, and I'm no time soon going to be able to mimic everything that it does. So we asked the question, what at just the basic level is happening here? What is a simple component of this system that we might be able to mimic? And the answer is that at the fundamental level, this material just acts as a barrier layer. It just physically prevents the bacteria from getting down and interacting with our relatively delicate intestinal cells. So we said, okay, how can we mimic that part? And the answer is actually, it's fairly simple. So we took a very common type of material, the material that catheters are made of, because it was very important to us that this not be an expensive laboratory exercise, that this be something we could actually apply and we treated it with a biocompatible liquid that would actually go and infiltrate into that solid material and would present a, a dynamic, flowy interface. And we just, we did that. And it turns out it's actually fairly simple to treat these materials in that way. So it, it worked out really well, and all of our laboratory tests showed that it, it worked really well against bacteria. But the thing about materials and medicine, if anybody ever comes to you and says, this material works great at X application on a lab bench, you should always be very suspicious. Because at the end of the day, these materials that are made to be in a living system, a lot changes. It's a whole different thing. It's a whole different thing. We are very, very complicated, and we can never replicate all the complicated things that are going on. So if you really want to know if something works in a medical application, you need to test it in a living system. So we can't do that, 
here at the University of Maine. So we made some absolutely phenomenal friends at the, Notre, the University of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. um, Professor Ana Flores Morelis there is one of the up and coming experts in something called catheter associated urinary tract infection or COWT, that is the formal term for catheter infections. And she has the ability to be able to test new things in a living system. And she did, she tested these materials and the results were just jaw dropping. We saw between a 90 and 100% decrease in the amount of bacteria that were adhering to these catheters in a living system. And we saw the follow-on effects of you didn't have then the bacteria spreading to the other, organism, or the other organs where infections really start to become bad wow so yeah it was very exciting yeah you must have had a eureka moment when when you saw the results well i mean I, yes i i thought it was cool but she was totally amazed because she works with this type of system all the time and she had never seen results as good as that so right. you are an engineer mm. um but uh the things we're talking about seem to be more in the realm of chemistry, biology, medicine. Uh, so what, what's an engineer doing looking at this? Are we gonna, is this a trend we'll see more of with engineers working on what might not seem to be on first glance engineering problems? That's an excellent question and I'm so glad you asked it because I think it's really important for everyone to realize that this type of integration of the disciplines is really the future of science. The biggest, most important, hardest questions that we're faced with right now really fall at the intersection of disciplines. We need people from all sides to be able to work together to answer these questions. So, um, you know, the example of me as a material scientist, an engineer, someone who creates these things, partnering with a biologist who studies infections to be able to get the results and figure out the answers to questions that we really needed to know. That is just one example of how we can do this, but there are countless others. But it, it takes everybody. And we need to be able to speak each other's language too. I need to be able to understand enough about biology to understand my collaborators. I need to understand enough about chemistry to talk about the folks who specialize in polymers and these types of things. So yes, it's very much the future I feel for, for engineers. Right, so where is this development sort of on the, the, the curve? Uh, you know, how far is it away from becoming a, you know, a standard solution that uh, is used in hospitals and, mm -hmm. and, and elsewhere? So um, we are doing everything we can to move this to the market as quickly as possible because I have actually gotten emails from just general community members saying, you know, my mother is in an elder care facility and really struggles with these UTIs. I read about your work. Can I have it, please? Right. And we take those very, very seriously. We recognize that this is our responsibility to the community when we make a discovery like this to be able to push it out as quickly as we can. So we have actually received funding from a philanthropic group who has said, this is important. Here's some funds. Please push this out into the market. And we are, with that support, working to do that right now. We're working with consultants who specialize in FDA approval, the Food and Drug Administration, because any medical device, just like any drug, needs to go through a very rigorous safety and efficacy analysis. So we are in the process of doing that right now. We are talking with potential commercialization partners. We're actually actively working with one of the top suppliers of catheters in the United States to be able to see if we can have an agreement to be able to push this out into the market. And we are continuing the research because although this worked very, very well in our living system, we now need to take the next step of trying it in human beings. 
And so that's where we are going. But we're pushing this uh, as many angles as we can, as fast as we can, because we understand that there are a lot of people who struggle with this, and we want to help. Best case scenario when it, that might happen you think Couple. oh my goodness I have no idea no. unfortunately it's with these things, thing. it's a complicated process with a lot of moving parts but we are trying as best we can and we won't stop until it's out there right the other technology um, has to do with the vascular system mm. can you can you talk about that yeah so I mentioned earlier about how when we look at nature for the way that nature deals with bacterial populations that there's a lot of balance in those systems that you know at the farm in the forest or in our bodies you never have a situation where it is just static it is just this way and it never changes balance requires a constant back and forth and in nature, we have that all the time. So we asked ourselves if we really want to achieve balance with our organisms and apply this more broadly than just you know, a solid static material, how could we start to think about that? Where can we go with that? And so we thought about our own example, you know, our bodies, and how our bodies manage to have that dynamic situation. So sure, you, you have the mucus which can flow and which can adapt, but it's also constantly changing. It can be sloughed off, it can be refreshed from the cells underneath. What is within that mucus can change in composition depending on how your microbiome is changing in composition, right? We are constantly changing. So what makes that possible? Well. At the fundamental level, it is our vascular system. If you think about it, our vascular system, our veins and arteries, are constantly bringing oxygen, nutrients, chemical signals to our tissues and taking away wastes and carbon dioxide and chemical signals. And in this way, we have a constant communication loop. And that communication loop is affected by the bacteria in our bodies. So we said, okay, how can we copy this? So we have some really interesting 3D printers here in my lab that can do some really neat things. And we were able to actually 3D print an empty vascular network into the same type of material that catheters are made out of, that a lot of medical materials are made out of, this squishy silicone rubber, that clear rubbery stuff that's everywhere in hospitals. Right. Yeah. So we printed these vascular channels into that material. And then we put bacteria on the top and we said, okay, we're going to have a conversation with these bacteria. So we filled our vascular channels with a liquid. And as the bacteria grow and change, that material that they produce, those metabolites, will diffuse down into those channels. And so we can actually just recollect the liquid out of those channels without touching the bacteria and test it. And when we did, we saw, oh, look, we can tell how they're growing. You know, we get more signal when there are more of them. We could say, look, here's this one species and here's this other species. We could tell what type of bacteria was there. So that was really, really exciting. But then we said, okay, conversations. It's not a monologue. It's right. a conversation. Let's right. go the other way. So we actually filled those vascular channels again with a type of material that would instruct the bacteria to stop growing. And when we did, we found that we could control them. We could actually put our channels in such a way that we would have a place you know, right over the channel where the bacteria would stop growing and a place beside it, which we carefully calculated, where that material wouldn't reach yet. And so they would continue growing. So we could actually tell the bacteria to grow in a particular pattern, depending on how we constructed our vascular network. Wow. And we're, we're not limited to doing this just in one special type of material. We did this 
in a bunch of different types of materials. And as long as the, the things that you want to collect from the bacteria or the messages you want to deliver can diffuse through that material, can pass through it, we are able to have this ongoing conversation with bacteria. And we could do it over and over and over, because again, we're not touching the bacteria. We're not doing anything to them other than telling them what to do and listening to what they're telling us. So play this out for me then. What What's the potential? I mean, could you uh, communicate with cancer cells and tell them to stop growing uh, uh, you know, down the road, potentially? Potentially, yes. I don't see there's any reason why we couldn't, because cells are cells, right? All cells will start to metabolize and will create chemicals, which we could collect, and then we can put right back to those cells through this vascular network something else. So um, the only constraint we have here is that it has to be with the material. The cells would have to be on the material or touching the material in some way to make this work. Right. So what that would look like, I think that's going to be an engineering question for the future. But I'm excited about this potential of let's have conversations here and let's work to understand to achieve that balance. I think that's something that's been missing a lot in what we do so far and a great potential going forward. Uh, this is sort of a question out of left field, but it's like a, a nanotechnology, nanobots going through uh, arteries and veins and such and, and uh, you know, attaching to cancer cells. Would that be, is that a thing? Or am I, am I, am I just uh, barking up the wrong tree? Uh, no, I'm sure that's a thing, yeah. right? I'm sure, because it's really cool. And with cancer, it's such a widespread problem that we need to take every potential opportunity mm. we have to figure out new solutions. So I'm pretty sure people have done that. But that's outside of my realm okay. of knowledge at the All right. moment. Hopefully someone out there is doing <laughs> yes. that. Yes. Right. I mean, this, this sounds like it could be huge. I mean, the, the, if, if this technology gets out there, is it, I mean, is it a game changer? I would, Potentially? I would hope so. I mean, every scientist, when they do their work, hopes that it will really make a difference in some way, shape, or form, and I'm no different. I mean, there are technological hurdles to overcome, absolutely, but I am very excited about the possibility for this and what it could mean, not just for medical applications, this concept of let's understand the biological system, let's talk to it, let's direct it in a way that maintains that balance, but sort of tweaks it to where we want to go. I see a lot of potential beyond medicine and things like manufacturing. Let's grow systems. Let's grow our materials from scratch. Let's have them be designed as they grow to have a final form that we want. And what could we do if we have a system like that? If we grow our material and we make it so that that material is alive and we can monitor it, then it can potentially self-heal. It can potentially respond dynamically to conditions. So, you know, you had your question out of left field. Here's my question out of left field. Can we engineer living materials by using the system of communication? Wow. So that's where I go. Yeah. So how does this percolate into your teaching and your research and, and getting this uh, experience for students? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I love sharing this with my students because I see this as something that could potentially help them going forward. And so I use this as an opportunity to really work with them to be able to generate the next ideas. We have this problem, but 
this project is so important, so let's work together to figure out how we might overcome this hurdle. It's the same in teaching. I can use this as an example of how we can start to think about materials differently, how we might be able to control materials in the future. I actually teach a grad class on bio-inspired materials, and a lot of it is this type of thing. Let's look at how nature solves these problems and let's take that idea and let's figure out how we can tweak it to make it even better. So I find it's it's really a great teaching tool and, and just education tool in general. There's so much stress right now in the students about the climate and where we're going and we have all of this plastic waste and what do we do with it and is there any hope at all? So being able to reach out to them and connect and say we can make a difference together let's work together, here's an idea, you might later on find something else that you're passionate about, but let's start to play in this space. Hope is not lost. As long as there are some of us here around who are willing to do this, it can be done. So our standard question we, we like to end with, uh, where do you see this in five or 10 years? What's your best case or realistic best case scenario as to what, what we might see going on? All right, so best case scenario is that we see the initial results of the catheter infection work out into the market, making a huge difference, improving lives for millions and millions of people. On the vascular sci-fi let's talk to bacteria, I really hope that we'll be, have been able to take that to the next level and we will start being able to see this in targeted applications like let's talk to cancer cells and see what's going on. Let's try and grow a living material that does this particular type of thing. That's where I hope to see those those two things. Exciting stuff. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, I think the, the lawn, you have a lot of lawn outside your window here. So we do indeed. <laughs> yeah, Very so. nicely cut by yeah, this it's point. It's going to look great after all this, <laughs> but appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning us in. We've had a blast bringing you 10 very different stories in the episodes that make up season eight. The main question will take a hiatus for much of the summer, but we'll be back with more great stories on research and creativity at the University of Maine and the people who make this their life's work. You can find all eight seasons of The Main Question wherever you get your podcasts, Apple and Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, UMaine's website and YouTube pages, as well as Amazon and Audible. Questions or comments, send them along to mainquestion at maine.edu. This is Ron Luznet. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.